Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. In a recent interview with CNN, John Bolton bragged that he has been personally involved in planning coup d'etats abroad. I don't know that I agree with you, to be, to be uh, fair, with all due respect. Uh, one doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, yeah. not here, but, you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. I do want to ask a follow-up. Um, when we were talking about what is capable, what you need to do to be able to plan a coup, and you you cited your expertise having planned coups. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but uh, successful coups. Well, I wrote about Venezuela in uh, in the book, and uh, it it turned out not to be successful. Not that we had all that much to do with it, but I saw what it took. Well, joining me is someone with unique insight into John Bolton's conduct in government and the U.S. role in the kinds of coups that John Bolton was bragging about. Fulton Armstrong is the former National Intelligence Officer for Latin America, the U.S. intelligence community's most senior analyst. He's also a former senior staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he's currently a lecturer at American University's School of International Service. And Fulton Armstrong has personal experience with John Bolton because... In 2002, John Bolton tried unsuccessfully to have Fulton Armstrong dismissed from his position. Fulton Armstrong, thank you for joining me. Happy to be here. Thanks. What was your reaction when you saw John Bolton's comments on CNN? I, I wasn't surprised at all. Uh, I was in government for many years, uh, and I saw how a lot, a lot of times political appointees would be, as they like to say, Success has many fathers and failures and orphan. Um, a lot of political appointee type people try to make everybody think that all the very big, successful, sexy, covert operations that we do or their brainchilds or brainchildren, is that the right word? Um, or And that failures are not their responsibility. I'm not surprised. In the case, watching from outside the U.S. government as well, particularly on the Venezuela issue, about which Bolton wrote a whole lot, in his book, a surprising amount. Um, in his book, uh, I'm not surprised that he would say that he was out involved in covert operations and coups and coup d'etats and stuff like that. Can you take us back to your personal brush with him? In 2002, he tried to have you removed from your position in a senior intelligence position because your analysis was conflicting with his particular political agenda. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, it wasn't my analysis. It was the analysis of the intelligence community. Uh, all 15 agencies presented these coordinated lines. Um, and he wanted to push the envelope. It's, it's normal political behavior, um, particularly for people who don't have a whole lot of government experience and don't know how we have these various abilities to push back. Um, and what he wanted to do was exaggerate the, the quality, quantity, and range of of information that we had on a Cuba-related issue, Cuba so-called biological weapons program, which he wanted to allege publicly um, existed. And he pushed the envelope, but he pushed in a way using staff and, and him, himself, his own name, um, that was inappropriate for U.S. government behavior. And then when he didn't have his way with us, he took some really truly uh, inappropriate steps, uh, forms of revenge, eventually, essentially, revenge against people who wouldn't conform to his agenda. We did say, just to clarify a little bit, I never had a conversation with him, exchanged emails with him, was never even in the same room as him during this so-called confrontation that he liked to allege that we were having with him. 
Um, but we did tell his staff that he could say in his name whatever he wanted, or in the Secretary of State's name, or in the President's name, or in the name of the United States government if he wanted to, because in, in democracy you're elected to represent a particular government. Um, we just said he couldn't say it in our name. And that uh, that wasn't enough. He really wanted to um, have his way with us. And we, as a community, all 15 agencies uh, agreed with the position that no, we weren't going to move the analysis to accommodate his political agenda. And the agenda when it comes to the allegation against Cuba was that Cuba was developing biological weapons? Yes. Or had, I can't remember the exact phrasing. This was quite a, quite a while ago. Um, but that Cuba had a program that was much more aggressive, much more focused, much more advanced than the intelligence community was prepared to say. Because his goal was to create a second axis of evil. Remember that great phrase, axis of evil, um, from, from the time, from the early Bush-Cheney administration. And they wanted to do a second one that included um, Cuba. And so Bolton has personally taken aim at you. He has written that you have a pro-Castro bias. And reportedly, the Wall Street Journal claimed that he accused you even of being a Cuban spy. Can you talk about the allegations he lodged against you and what specific actions he took to try to have you reassigned or removed? Um, the, uh, I, he, a lot of people of that ilk um, make all kinds of allegations without foundation. Um, and you could say it's sort of gossipy. It's sort of uh, you know, junior high schoolish sort of name calling, um, things like that. But uh, that was a common thing that he said, and and it was he he wasn't the only one. There were other people in that administration that would say things like that. But there obviously was no evidence whatsoever. They did take certain actions against uh, myself and against another individual that was in the intel community at the time one that worked at the State Department, a really decent, super decent and bright, committed, balanced, neutral intelligence officer. Um, and he did take personnel actions. In my case, he came out to headquarters and demanded a meeting with George Tenet, the director at the time, and he wound up getting the deputy director at the time and demanded that I, that I be removed from my position. There was a little, little bit of a, a silly game of uh, semantics game that that wasn't equivalent to being fired because when he was being investigated by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee upon his confirmation hearings to be the perm wrap up of the United Nations, someone used the word fired. Fired would mean actually, you know, cut off and removed from the government. It, but in the US, in the US government, if you are a senior official and you are removed from your position, I don't think you have to worry too much about the semantics removing someone from their position is firing them from that position. And there were other things that they had done, some of which I can't go into detail because I have yet to get clearance from the United States government to divulge it. But let's say that in general lay non-specific, non non-classified terms, um, it was a series of extremely harassing activities directed against me uh, in order to force me to um, to um, to uh, to lose accesses and and make it uncomfortable for me to remain in my position. I did finish my tour. Four years is a very decent time. My record of <clears throat> as national intelligence officer is very good. Um, unfortunately, the intel community won't release the papers 
that he was unhappy, <laughs> that he was unhappy about. In fact, they don't release any paper that could be embarrassing to uh, to uh, to themselves, to the intel community, or or to particular administrations. So I I can't show you the documents that he would claim would show some sort of bias. He and others. There was one other. There are two or three other really very aggressive activists, political operators type people in the Cheney Bush administration that would routinely go after people who who um, not just didn't get in, not just got in their way, but who didn't agree with their worldview, frankly. Even if everything that we did, every syllable that we would utter would be have to be coordinated by all 15 agencies uh, of the intelligence community. What's fascinating about Bolton is it doesn't just apply to targeting people inside the intelligence community, but, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story of Jose Bustani, the then head of the OPCW, who was ousted at during that same period, 2002, 2003, because he was impeding the Bush administration's drive to Iraq. And it's public now. The story that Bustani tells is that Bolton came to his office in The Hague and said to him, you have to resign. Because Bustani was trying to bring Iraq into the Chemical Weapons Convention, which would have interfered with the drive to invade Iraq. So Bolton said to him, you have to resign. And he also said to him, we know where your kids live. Are you familiar with that story? Have you heard of that? No, no, I'm not. Um, but certain things that the Cheney Bush administration did to me showed that they did know, indeed know where I lived. So, yes. Huh. Well, so there has been speculation in the media as to what other coups Bolton might have been referencing when he bragged about planning coup d'etats. Uh, Venezuela is the one that he mentioned in his book. Are there any others that you think uh, that you know of that Bolton was talking about when it comes to firsthand experience? Coups, um, we have to be careful, just a teeny bit of history here that when the U.S. government supports coups, it's done on different levels. There's the highly political level where the policy is to achieve regime change without actually getting into the mud with potential coup plotters. A second level would be one where we establish it as a policy and we, through various players in the U.S. government, including covert players, but also overt players, go out and sort of look for people and say things, mm, mm, sort of help me, uh, rid me of this priest um, sort, of, sort of stuff. And then the third one is when you're hands-on and you're actually recruiting people, arming people, and setting particular operations in motion. If you read the history of the coup against Allende in Chile, what you actually see is the third level of involvement. The policy level, of course, was established. The arrhythmia of this priest stuff had already been done, but we were deeply involved in supporting people that had coup-type ambitions. But in this case, the joke was sort of on us that the ones that we were supporting were not the ones that actually did the coup. But the ones who did the coup saw that we were seeking a coup, supporting a coup, and we would, of course, tolerate and live with the coup, even if the final result, General Pinochet, was not, not exactly to our liking, we would still go along with it. So in with using that definition, what you see here is, is and it's pretty, pretty clearly stated in Bolton's book, that he wasn't the great conspirator of some of the coup attempts, there were three or four attempted coups against Maduro, and there were even a, a extensive operations against Chavez, most of which did not originate from the Oval Office or did not originate from the National Security of, uh, Council's um, office. But then when they were happening, they certainly threw their full weight. And you could probably say even logistical and maybe even intelligence support.
maybe even, which means I don't know. But when you look at the circumstantial evidence, the, the big operation, for example, at the bridge uh, in February 2019, I think it was, delivering humanitarian assistance to the opposition in Venezuela, that was a very well thought out thing, which uh, operation that was supposed to lead to some sort of military confrontation. It didn't work in part because the opposition turned out to be such sissies and overpromised and overstated their support, etc. But I noticed that even in his book, Bolton uh, clings to the myth that the torching of the trucks full of, of assistance was done by the Maduro people. It was not. It was done by the opposition people by accident because their Molotov cocktails um, landed on their, on their own vehicles. Or maybe they just said, wait, the Venezuelans are behaving with such restraint that we have to destroy this stuff ourselves to get the photo op. There was then the coup, the attempted coup of uh, uh, April 30th or May 1st, I forget which it was, where, where the, our designated president of Venezuela announced standing in front of a little military base in Caracas that as commander in chief, he was ordering the military to rise up and overthrow the government. Uh, I don't know, maybe half dozen officers supported him, maybe a dozen officers supported him, etc. When that happened, it was really quite surprising. Bolton held a fascinating press conference as the operation was crumbling or had already begun to crumble uh, quite seriously, where he knew these multi-syllabic last names of all of the Venezuelan officers who he had been told were part of the plan. That means, in other words, there was a lot of prior coordination, even if the covert operation and coup had not been launched by the U.S. government. And then there was another one where these goofballs, we called it back then the, the Bay of Piglets, when some some goofball, and I shouldn't say goofballs, they're still in jail. So one shouldn't call somebody in jail a goofball. But they were the gang that couldn't shoot straight that was going to invade and do a snatch operation against Maluro, which all of the circumstantial evidence shows the US government. I don't think that, I don't, I don't remember if Bolton was in the job at that time, but the US government was fully aware that they were going to do this stuff, provided all kinds of support, called the Colombians off the operation. Colombians were going to shut it down because they didn't know who the hell these people were. Um, and stuff. So we, there's a lot of these coup sorts of things out there, some of which originate with us, with us but many of which do not. How about Haiti in 2004? Uh, that's another area where John Bolton was critical of you. He accused you of being a supporter of Jean-Bertrand Aristide, the president who was ousted. And Aristide certainly accused the U.S. of playing a key role in his ouster. This was the second coup against him. Uh, that was successful. The first took place in the early 1990s under George W. Bush's father. Uh, but recently, the French ambassador uh, to Haiti at the time, named Thierry Bilcal, told the New York Times that the U.S. and France were instrumental in backing Aristide's overthrow in 2004. And he listed one of the reasons being that Aristide at the time was demanding French reparations, uh, that France pay reparations for all the money that was looted from Haiti uh, after Haiti became independent uh, in 1804. Did the Bush administration play a role in Aristide's ouster in 2004? Yeah, the, um, the answer, the, the short answer is yes, of course, because they withdrew the licensing for his security detail and gave, I don't know with what level of what level of U.S. government involvement, but certainly gave every signal possible 
to the people that wound up removing him from office when they were regrouping and rearming over in the Dominican Republic, they were doing all that they could to facilitate those operations. It's ironic that somebody would accuse somebody like me of supporting Jean-Bertrand Aristide because it was actually a Bush, Daddy Bush, um, George H.W. Bush uh, policy to restore Aristide after the coup, which Bill Clinton took on and very patiently and in a bloodless so-called invasion, uh, wound up restoring the man and tried to establish a particular relationship. It became a very partisan issue here in Washington where there were many Republicans who felt that this was an issue that they could use to, to undermine President Clinton. And I wouldn't defend every aspect of, of Haiti policy at that time, but one of the ways to do it was and there's stuff that still needs to be written about all of this stuff that I can't at this point divulge about the agency's relationship with certain people whose whose primary purpose was to overthrow Aristide and lay the groundwork, even if they weren't the ones that later um, pulled the, the trigger and forced the man out of the country. But yes, the US government was was quite deeply involved in that second coup, which was hugely ironic because it was basically a daddy Bush policy to restore the man. Is it fair to say, as has been alleged in public reporting, that the coup plotters against Aristide in both cases, the early 90s and also in 2004, were linked to drug trafficking? I don't know. Uh, I think I don't know. That's by process of elimination, a pretty easy to conclusion, pretty easy conclusion to be reaching on how do these guys support themselves? Because they can, you can do a whole lot, as you can see with the current government and the previous government and the previous, previous government, you can still do a whole lot with money from kidnapping and petty crime. You basically just shake people down and the money then comes forward and you do your operations. But there were large amounts of money involved. And by process of elimination, I wasn't among the people who made this conclusion, but there were reasonable people who said, there's got to be money from somewhere else in there. But I don't, I'm not, I'm not in a position in, in, because I don't know. Um, to to confirm or deny any of that. From your time in government, did you gain any insight into what drives the prevailing animus inside the U.S. government towards leaders like Aristide? He was elected democratically twice. He was Haiti's first democratically elected president after years of dictatorship. He comes from the country's poor majority. Cables released by WikiLeaks show that even the U.S. embassy acknowledged that he was Haiti's most popular political figure. So what drives the animus towards him in Washington? I mean, Aristide was a little bit sui generis in, in, in that way because he was a very controversial person. He was, um, he was a complicated person who did things that in the, certainly the American type logic were not always easy to square. And it was, he was in that way, quintessentially Haitian. The way he spoke, uh, particularly when he was speaking in Creole, was not easy to track, you know, and we like things that are easy to track. Even if you don't do it, we track it. And so, you know, Fidel Castro could say something totally stupid, but at least it would clearly stupid. Uh, and we, we would then basically, or a friendly government could promise to do all kinds of goofy stuff and not do it, but at least it was clearly stated. Aristide was a really difficult person to, um, despite all the slanders, I mean, the US government elements of the US government did everything they could to slander him with phony allegations about his human rights behavior, phony allegations about medications that were in his, his medicine cabinet and all of that. 
The bigger question is why do we have people in our government who, when they're not the party in power, can't let the sitting administration do a policy that would include some sort of dialogue or collaboration or cooperation or co-optation with people that they don't like. And I think you have to look at the different worldviews and, and even going back to the John Bolton thing, just read what he writes about how horrible he thought it was that Obama and John Kerry, Barack Obama and John Kerry had, had announced the end of the, of the, um, the policies in Latin America that gave us exclusive rights of influence in the region. Uh, and th those sorts of things they, they disagree with. They think that that should basically be a place where we have our, our influence and we do what we want to do. Therefore, anybody who doesn't want to play with us on our terms, and the pattern's pretty clear, people that are more nationalistic, people, I don't want to defend them because some of them are really pretty goofy and, and pretty ineffective leaders, but some of them are painfully honest. And they say, no, we're going to stand up for our rights. And then that sort of makes them a target for this sort of people. Whereas if you look back at Venezuela policy under Clinton and even under Obama, parts of Obama, times of Obama, it was, let's worry about what he does, not what he says. But the, but the opponents of those policies would always focus on what he says, even if we knew that it was rhetoric for domestic consumption. I only wonder there whether, while well, yes, for example, Trump and Bolton come in office and their policies become much more extreme, an open coup in Venezuela, for example. But do Democrats not pursue policies that lay the groundwork for future coup attempts? So, for example, Haiti, yes, Clinton brought Aristide back, but he kind of boxed him in. He forced Aristide to make a bunch of concessions that Aristide didn't want to make, where Aristide essentially had to abandon a lot of the platform he was elected on, which included, you know, raising wages for the poor majority and other measures uh, in the interest of, of the people who elected him. And Venezuela, Obama did declare Venezuela to be a national security threat. I don't know why, but that seemed to lay the groundwork for sanctions that helped set the stage, at least somewhat, for the coup attempt. I mean, you could do an entire program on, on the difference between the way Republicans and Democrats do foreign policy. Okay. It's, it's, in, in one case, I think one could say, defensibly say, that, that the Democrats have better analysis and better policies. But the Democrats don't fight for their policies. They don't fight even for their analysis. They allow the narrative to be co-opted by other people. They lose control of it, even on the so-called normalization issue in Cuba. Look at the way Joe Biden has abandoned, had jettisoned almost entirely the narrative created during his vice presidency with, and even frankly, I worked for, for Joe Biden for a, a little while on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, just as he was leaving to become vice presidential candidate and stuff. He abandoned his own record, his own rhetoric, his own positions as VP in order to do what? Uh, sometimes it's they either they think that if they could out Trump Trump, on policies like Cuba, which is a loser because no one, no one's going to follow somebody who cowers in the corner and tries to imitate a predecessor who whose level of audacity and dishonesty they could never, ever match, uh, and all. And so, on the case of Haiti, you could also see even when there wasn't a high political 
stake uh, comeback here in Washington, D.C. after the earthquake during Obama, January 2010. The earthquake was a historic opportunity for the United States government to help, let me say words like progressive uh, or pro-democracy Haitians redesign some of their system because it was a way of breaking the stranglehold of the elites over certain parts of the economy, certain property, certain city designs in Port-au-Prince, this great slum that right now is the site of a huge siege. This, these things could have been changed in the wake of the earthquake. And it was the Clinton people, it was uh, Hillary Clinton and Cheryl Mills on her staff who pushed back against moderate Democrats' proposals for fixing the policy and therefore taking control of the narrative and the politics. So you got to ask the Democrats, how come you've got better ideas and better proposals and better this and better that, but how come you don't fight for them? Hmm. And I should have mentioned earlier the example of Honduras. Uh, do you see that, which a coup that occurred under Obama, do you see that as, that as an example of a U.S.-backed coup? U.S.-backed coup, I, I don't think that history will show that it was a U.S.-backed coup, but it, it turned out to be a U.S.-tolerated coup. Hmm. The initial impulse that came out of the White House uh, when the coup happened, remembering what happened with the reversed coup that uh, against Chavez in 2002. Remember, Chavez went off for a weekend in exile um, at, a, at a military complex, then came back even stronger than before the coup. The White House wisely said, mm -mm -mm, we can't be supporting this coup. We can't say he serves him right. Uh, in fact, his offenses were very minor. The president at the time, Mel Salaya, his offenses were very minor compared to the offenses of both of his successors, um, Pepe Lobo and uh, and Juan Orlando, who right now is in, in prison awaiting trial. And so, yes, it, it started out as good, but the State Department flipped the policy over time. The State Department flipped it and referred to the Golpe, the, to the Golpista government, the uh, Michelete government as our friends, and, and officially stated, as they said in Spanish, pase lo que pase, no matter what happens, we're going to be accepting the elections that was run by the coup regime that led, that led to the election of Pepe, Pepe Lobo. We weren't, I don't think, uh, let me say this, I don't know of evidence that we were on the ground floor for that particular coup. We did, we were a little bit lackadaisical and we lost control ourselves of the narrative in country, but I'm not sure if that's necessarily the embassy's fault. I, I just don't know. But here in Washington, actually, if you want a sort of a little bit of a laugh, President John, uh, Chairman Kerry, when I was working for John Kerry at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, did a statement calling on Mel Celaya to, to you know, cut the silliness two days before the coup. But we didn't know that there was a coup. And we certainly didn't want our statement to be used as a rationale that Washington would support the coup. So, mm -hmm. But it's just for a laugh, go back and look at it. Um, but th that's part of the problem when you are a coup supporting government that people will misunderstand your signals or people will invoke your signals falsely, artificially for their own purposes. In the case of Cuba, we have officially under section 109 of the Helms-Burton Act, we've been spending an average of 20 to $25 million a year um, to do covert operations that are intended to identify, train, um, support, pay, et cetera, people who seek 
uh, regime change in that country as well. When that is one of the tools in your toolbox that you use as often as you do, it's sort of natural then for bad guys in the region to say, look, at this is what the gringos are all about. I know you have to go soon, but just a few more questions. What is your assessment of the state of the Venezuela coup attempt that John Bolton bragged about? Biden came into office and has continued the policy. He recognizes Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela. But the a crisis in Ukraine has raised some hurdles for that. And recently he sent some top officials to go meet with Maduro. Do you see signs that Biden is going to uh, try to veer off the Trump policy of regime change in Venezuela, especially given the recent elections in Colombia, where the U.S. lost a reliable partner in that coup attempt with a new government, leftist government coming in? Yeah, a good question. I think that they're they're obsessed, so obsessed with the midterm elections that certainly on the rhetorical side, we're not going to see any change. But also we're getting to see that Maduro, who's a former bus driver and former percussionist and former labor organizer uh, and former foreign minister, but not an extremely brilliant one, um, is a lot smarter than people thought he was and maybe even a lot smarter than we are. Because he he meets, for example, with this fellow that's the so-called hostage negotiator for the White House. I think it's for the White House or the State Department, the administration's hostage negotiator to talk about people that had been arrested for alleged corruption in Venezuela. They're not hostages at all. But he was smart enough to take the high road and say, yeah, you want to talk? Come and talk. I don't worry about your job title. And meanwhile, what he's doing is slowly eroding, um, er eroding our parts, elements of our sanctions policy. He's also quite smart and that he knew since the day that we designated slash accepted the self-designation of Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela, that Guaido was going to implode. And again, go back to the John Bolton book and read what the administration's thoughts about, because certainly, certainly President Trump's evaluation of Juan Guaido wasn't, and he was right. Juan Guaido is pretty much an empty suit. And to rely on him with sensitive operations and things like that simply wasn't good. And when they did do their own operations with or without our support, they were really goofy, like what I referred to earlier as the Bay of Piglets um, thing, where people are still in jail. People got killed because of that. And it was a weird, it was a weird operation that no one should have allowed anybody um, to do. So is policy shifting? I think tiny bits. I think that the bigger shock, as you just said, is that that democracy in Colombia has taken a, a turn at, away from the old elites, the people that did the false positives, human rights violations, the people who took $10 billion in US Plan Colombia money and the flow of drugs today is as robust as ever. And we can't blame Venezuela for that. Um, and that the Colombian people have said, well, you Americans might still like to stay with the status quo of Uribe and Duque and stuff, but we want change. And there's going to be change, but I'm not sure if it's going to be radical change. It's going to be cautious change, I think. But that is the primary driver now of any shift in policy. That Maduro has survived. The place is a total mess, in part because of his own incompetence. The human rights situation is not good. The, uh, the behavior of the military and the police is not good. But this, is, this was our policy. And we've had years and years and years to adjust the policy. But our foreign policy apparatus at the State Department loves this sort of stuff. 
They were loath to change the policy, just as they're loath to change Cuba policy, and therefore we're stuck on this treadmill of always being seen as supporting illicit changes of government rather than just letting democracy happen and sometimes dealing with the accepting the consequences and dealing with them uh, in a more of a partnership sort of way, the way Bill Clinton had said, the way Barack Obama had said. These countries were talking about Cuba, Venezuela, other targets of US regime change or destabilization have faced really heavy US sanctions. In the case of Venezuela, there's an opposition economist named Francisco Rodriguez who's done studies pointing out just how decimated the Venezuelan economy has been by US sanctions. Is there, based on your experience, are US policymakers aware of the consequences of their sanctions, that these consequences are felt by ordinary people, that the government never feels the brunt of these sanctions, but it's ordinary people who suffer? What you're indirectly asking me is if our government officials are liars because they deny it, flatly deny that the impact is that our sanctions are hurting common people. I, I, I don't like to call people liars um, and I don't like to call them ignorant either. Who, who, could, who could look at a situation like Venezuela and see we, their oil, which we have completely sanctioned, their oil represents 90, 95% of, of all of their foreign earnings. And who could look at Cuba and say that the, the, the US embargo doesn't have a huge human cost for Cuba. Interestingly, during this, the period of time, the short period of time that Barack Obama's normalization policies were moving forward in Cuba, we saw an incredible amount of a flourishing of the private sector an increase of people's independence and the quality of life also. You could say, oh, but that helps the regime um, survive. But the fact is that that makes those sorts of things engines for change. Engines for change compatible with the Cuban people's needs and the Cuban people's aspirations. Will it necessarily produce results that we want in the short term in order to win elections in Florida? No, it's not going to. But you cannot deny, you cannot deny that our even our refusal to sell certain equipment, even though on the books it says that the Cubans can buy it for them to like syringes, for them to do their own COVID vaccination, which is quite successful COVID vaccination, that it doesn't have implications for the Cuban people. It doesn't have implications for the Venezuelan people. It doesn't have implications even for what we did in Bolivia by supporting. The, the somewhat exaggerated, if not totally false allegations about irregularities in their 2019 elections, which led to a coup, which led to the military forcing Evo Morales out of the country and a woman of highly dubious uh, orientations um, becoming acting president and now facing, um, facing trial for her human rights violations and stuff. How could we say that our role in these things doesn't have an impact on the people of these countries. And going back to John Bolton, I believe by the time the Bolivia coup happened, he was kicked out of the Trump administration. He was gone. But I have no doubt that he would that he was very happy with that successful coup, at least until it was ultimately overturned by the Bolivian people. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big fan, frankly, of any of these guys, even on the right, the right wing in Latin America. They're just not very effective. They are really in it for very narrow constituencies. And also, if I say something that sounds a little bit defensive, Evo Morales, it's not, it's not intended to be such. 
Evo Morales was not the disastrous president that many people had expected him to be and, quote, wanted him to be. They really did want him to fail to discredit his sort of left of center sorts of models. Um, and yes, it, they would have celebrated. They did celebrate here in Washington when the OAS under under Secretary General Almagro certified that there were some high irregularities in the vote, which would turned out to be a completely false allegation and has been well-researched and well-documented. So yet another left-leaning president bites the dust, accepts exile, comes back, re-legitimizes, and hopefully will contribute to democratic progress rather than seeking revenge and behaving like the people who ousted him. Fulton Armstrong is the former National Intelligence Officer for Latin America, the U.S. intelligence community's most senior analyst, also a former senior staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, currently a lecturer at American University's School of International Service. Fulton Armstrong, thank you so much. My pleasure.